0: The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Call me
1: Snake.
2: Welcome to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I am Molly Balin.
0: and I am Eric Deutsch.
2: And we welcome back for the final time actor, pro Spider-Man cosplayer and co-host of Spider-Man Minute Zach Luna.
3: Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. i'm not <laughs> I'm not used to having people introduce me on things and it's so uh, <laughs> flattering. <laughs> <laughs> like. Like oh wow yeah I guess that is me thank you thanks for having me back guys yeah
2: yeah you're a multi-hyphenate
3: I suppose (laughs) I'm just trying to like have my hands in enough pots that I like don't die of starvation like it's there's no there's nothing cool about it I'm just poor like I need to have more than one job
2: (laughs) oh it's oh the hustling just hustling. What are we hustling today? We are hustling minute seventy-five, sir. Awesome. And uh, Brain and Maggie get to the magic door, and Brain engages in a epic battle of wits against Romero to try and convince him that the Duke has in fact asked Brain and Maggie to tend to an urgent matter with the President. Despite resistance from from Romero, Brain gains the upper hand and just walks past him into the room. <laughs> and we see that the President has picked up a new hairstyle since we saw him last. Oh
3: boy. <laughs> <laughs> things get interesting i mean not that they haven't been interesting but uh <laughs> we finally see what's behind the door on today's yeah, minute
2: yeah the uh executive room which i love i love i love i love that behind door number one of the executive room is romero yeah i like I just, that
0: i just love that it's the executive room
3: sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> this is the executive branch right I mean, we gotta. <laughs> that's where we keep our oh. executive um, oh
2: God! I didn't even think of that. That's really <laughs> so funny and really on the nose that I didn't see that. But thank you.
3: <laughs> You're welcome. No, it works. <laughs> One of those details. Um, yeah. <laughs> I like. We were talking yesterday about like um, making interesting shots with very little, and how that this tracking shot where we're sort of dollying in or handheld. I don't know, following the main characters in towards this door in this like underlit, slightly underexposed dark area. I like that they kind of get a twofer out of the shot in that when the door opens, it becomes an entirely different, like, sort of frame than we've had. But we haven't cut. Like, we're – there's not a second setup here. We're dark in an underexposed area outside the door, but we open into a room with more lighting, and it sort of makes a frame within the frame
1: mm. where
3: it's like – I don't – I just think it's a really cool way to – what do they really have here? A door on location and a bunch of junk and then some lights. And they they found a way to make a really dynamic – um you know, punchy look to the scene separating the spaces and, like, what they have access to and what, I don't know. Like, I whenever you see something clever like that in a movie, there's this sort of, like, uh, artistic thrill happening. Or, like, oh, they they, they made a solution. They, they figured something cool out, and I, I like seeing it. And I, I keep having those moments when I watch this movie.
2: Yeah, I agree. I I think for, given that they're leaning pretty hard on the language here, which is, I mean, the back and forth really is wonderful, but the fact that they can just do something very simple here, and it's pretty dramatic between, and it's not really like a different setup, like you're saying, but because you have like a hard light change that you shift for something that's really dark and grainy and underlit, like you're saying, to something that's kind of, you know, off-white around them, that these are all neutral tones, you know, for the... Well, really, honestly, for the rest of the minute, out for the most part, yeah. is kind of interesting. You know, how, again, what they can do subtly with lighting is is amazing.
3: Yeah, and the way that, like, moving the door out of the way finally gets lighting on Romero's face, like, it's so... I don't know. It just, it feels like a movie, which is (laughs) a weird phrase, but it's a thing I think about a lot when I'm, uh, you know, getting absorbed in any movie that I'm watching those moments of, of cinema where I'm like, Oh, that's like a cool idea visually. And they, and they did that with lights and props and people on the day. They like made this interesting thing happen and it doesn't have to be a big like, cgi extravaganza for there to be something interesting happening visually it could just be the way you have a door and where you put a light and then you get really creeped out by this guy's eyes i don't know (laughs) oh
2: my god yeah (laughs) um
3: you i'm sure you guys have talked at length about um i'm sorry what's this actor's name playing romero uh frank
0: doubleday
3: frank doubleday what a name um how he has such a unique presence this like this creepy energy he gives off of uh it's like a it's, it's not quite like he's a zombie but it's almost there <laughs> and mm-hmm. maybe that's why that's the name they gave him i don't know um but he, i don't think he's ever quite as intimidating as this moment maybe his introduction at, like at the beginning of the film but this moment with the door i just think he looks very scary even though he's not a big physical presence he is just a, a, an intense obstacle.
2: Mm. Yeah. Well said. And this really is the majority of the language exchange that we really even hear from him in the whole movie. And so yeah. I remember just being actually a little bit caught off guard by this scene because he's a little monosyllabic and he just is making intimidating noises. For the most part, you know, it's the demand in the beginning, weird noises, and then this exchange. And so I I remember being a little bit surprised that actually he's as astute as he is, as articulate as he is, you know, and so it's a, it's it's interesting.
3: Yeah. And he's, and we're, we're taken aback by that or, or creeped out enough by it that um, this, this exchange with the hat doesn't like ring silly. Like, th- he's wearing <laughs> Cabby's weird hat or whatever. And I think in a lot... <laughs> this is just, like, what it says on the page. There are a lot of ways you could set this up where that would, like, make him less intimidating in this moment, but I don't think it does. I think it's just, like, a casual detail that's thrown out there um, and doesn't, and like, I, I stick wonder, out. I
0: wonder why that casual detail's been thrown out there.
3: I I, do know, too. I, yeah. I can't
0: imagine why it's important to say that Cabby got something in a trade from Romero.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but he's like, and he's not going to tell us. He's got he. He doesn't want to tell us any more than he has to at this moment, and because he is he is the obstacle, and it's almost like he shares the the cabbie exchange just as like an offhand way of saying like screw you guy. I'm not I'm not telling you anything. This is like this isn't your prerogative. Um, but uh, but brain kind of earns his nickname here. I, I'm I just really like this whole like exchange here where he like he doubles down on. Uh, his lie confidently in in this way. I don't know. Do you have better ways to phrase like the 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 power exchange that happens here in this minute? Because it's mostly just them talking at the door.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a great bluff, is the way I looked at it. He's just mm. you know when he pulls out the I'll have to tell the Duke that you said that I can't come in. It, it's you know he's he's that's the line there. It, he's got You know he's got to get through with that line, or he's not getting in. Yeah. You know? And so he's just he is all in on that bluff and it works. And and, and he gets himself in by saying that because he's able to recognize Romero's fear of possibly the Duke being told that he didn't do what the Duke told Brain to allow him to do is bigger than him willing to, you know, not risk letting Brain in when maybe he shouldn't be, you know. Yeah. Um, Yeah. and, And, you know, I love that. The ad living that Brain is doing here, that he's just he's he's it's almost like he's just going to keep talking till he finds something that gets him in the room. And I, I love the face acting by Adrian Barbeau, because when Brain says he's got cyanide capsules, that's why I have to get in there and look, them. we got to find these cyanide capsules. Maggie does this very quick look at Brain of surprise that he said that.
1: Oh so yeah. The
0: implication is Brain this is not something that this is not a plan the two of them discussed ahead of time. Brain did not tell her what he was going to say. He may have not even thought of the cyanide capsule thing until he was standing right there doing his ad-libbing. And so he's just basically relying on his ability to talk his way into something.
3: Yeah. It's such like a like a casual confidence he has. It's yeah. sort of like the most um like powerful that he's felt in the movie at this point. Like I you know, his he has the influence earlier in the film and when with the, the double cross that we worry about and whatnot, but here in this moment is where I kind of fully get why people treat him with so much respect or um, know that he has like such a, such value in this society is that he is genuinely so, so quick on his feet and so smart and so um, clever, I guess like this is, I would not be confident enough to pull this off myself if, if
1: I was <laughs> in this situation,
3: you know? Like, he doesn't break at all. He doesn't get, like, stressed out or worried. He commits to the lie and doubles down on it so fully. He he even goes so far as he, like, starts to walk away when he's right. like, he's like, oh, I'll just have to go tell him then. And and Romero has to pull him back in. It's just really, really sharp stuff. Um, I, I don't know how much of it is, like, what what was written beforehand, or what was found in the rehearsal, or you know the way Harry Dean Stanton is like approaching it, but it really feels uniquely cool in the movie.
0: Yes, and and there's a second quick facial acting done by Adrian Barbeau. Then after Brain gets through, and so Maggie follows him in. She kind of sucks her cheeks in and looks <laughs> Romero in the eyes. It's like, ha, we got through you.
3: It worked. <laughs> That's what you get, yeah. Oh god. And, well, and prior to that, like just the move when when Brain knows that he's won, and we're gonna transition to a new like story beat here or like a, a new a new moment there. I just love this like physicality that happens where he moves Romero's arm out of the way and <laughs> walks underneath it. That is just so cool. I yeah, think. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm done talking. I, get out of my way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like he doesn't. He doesn't wait for the confirmation that he's won. He's like, "Oh, I won. Get out of my way." Yeah, <laughs> I just love it. I'm just I don't know. This is a cool movie, guys. I'm glad. I'm glad you <laughs> asked me to come on. It's is such a fantastic excuse to get like excited about a a movie that's new to me and that um, I'm sure I'm going to watch a lot more. <laughs>
0: like, that's awesome.
3: Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it.
0: And so he walks in the room, and I love how he address, He's a like, gentleman. He, he actually, like you know, <laughs> addresses the other thugs in the room. Uh, <laughs> and he gets to the president, uh, who the last time we saw was being uh, you know unhooked from the wall with the Duke shooting at him. And I, I, it's possible things have actually gotten worse for him because what a great visual gag—he's got a long blonde <laughs> wig on his head.
3: It's so bizarre. Like, it, I don't recognize him until he addresses, uh, addresses him directly. I'm like, oh. oh, that's what's going on here. Okay, this is cool. It's, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what they were planning for him here. Like, what the... I
0: think they're just fucking with him. He's like, yeah, oh, yeah. Put a blonde wig on the president. They're
3: oh. <laughs> surrounded him with mannequins. Uh, like, is this...
0: Yes. Let's not leave that out. There's tons of naked female mannequins all over this room.
3: Yeah the uh, the executive room, the executive yeah. mannequin room, the <laughs> the room of TVs and arcade games and m- mannequins and flags. Yeah, there
0: appears to be a pinball machine, uh, a computer. Yeah, it, it looks like a you know a 1981 style computer. Uh, I like the fact that the president also, on whatever chair he's in, they actually draped the American flag on the chair. As like, oh, this is the
3: presidential <laughs> chair. Let's make sure we have a flag there. <laughs> or they were practicing some sort of like uh, tableau they were gonna do later. Like, is this also going to be a thing on Duke's car? You know, like, are they going <laughs> to strap the president to, like, the roof of it with this, like, weird chair and flag and mannequin ordeal as they have, like, Snake's head on the front of it driving down towards freedom? Like, wh- what? what is this? I don't know. They don't tell us. <laughs> but the, the question is very intriguing. The quest-
0: <laughs> and the let's quest- give Donald Pleasant some credit. He actually had the idea to put the wig on.
3: Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. What was that like? To just like, come when they got to this day, he was like, oh, I should also have something bizarre and strange yeah. on my head. Yeah. Wow. Wow. It's a, it's a movie that feels like, like all, okay. The, the script has all of the ideas and big concepts ironed out. So we know that the story works and all of the ideas and themes are functional. But when we're making it, there's almost this like, uh, you know, improvisational feel to the setups and the, the texture of the scenes and the way like it, it doesn't, not quite in like a docudrama style, like we're peeking in on a real world and people are just running around, like pointing cameras and stuff, but, but closer in that realm than like a really slick um, fantasy land, there's this feeling of like some people just like a group of friends producing a movie and, flying by the seat of their pants. And I'm, there's something thrilling about that that comes through In mm-hmm. like, a, Oh, I'm going to, oh, and he wears a wig in this one. And, uh, you know, Duke is going to do the Moses thing in the big scene. And, Oh yeah. The guy doesn't even know that he shouldn't be hitting our lead actor in the face. <laughs> <laughs>
1: like,
3: there's something slightly dangerous and punk rock and cool about that. And mm-hmm. you can, you can feel it even if you don't know that's what it's from the the idea of you know yeah just let Donald Pleasance come up with what weird humiliation they're putting on him in this scene like let him take ownership of that idea I think that's so cool
0: yeah I mean the you know the the changes from the shooting script to I mean from the draft script to the shooting script you know there's big changes but I don't think that's really any more than any typical movie and you know the draft script versus what ended up actually in the movie obviously again changes but again I wouldn't say any more than happens in any other movie so you know a lot of the dialogue written down on the page is it's, it's not too much different than in the movie but
1: mm-hmm.
0: John Carpenter did allow the actors to play with their characterizations though and so you know yeah. Harry Dean Stanton and Romero was specific, the actor with Romero specifically was basically told like you know you, you know do what you want with this character and so like that's all the characterization of him being just this complete freak that was all the actor that wasn't even John Carpenter
1: oh interesting uh, and so
0: and Harry Dean Stanton was allowed to do some of that and Donald Pleasant was allowed to do some of that and Isaac Hayes was allowed to do some of that so he really let the actors kind of take what they what the page was given to them and just run with it
3: gosh it's cool yeah is this like is this a big movie like in St. Louis do people like <laughs> like go nuts and like hold screenings of it and stuff like I don't know,
0: because it was during a time when the city was not in good shape.
3: Sure, yeah, yeah.
0: You know, so I don't know. I mean, here in New York, we love our movies when when our city was a shithole. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't speak to St. Louis's psyche, though.
3: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's just, I, I guess, like, I, I'm feeling, not like fear of missing out, but like some sort of nostalgic longing for, like, I wish I had known of this movie at, when it came out, like I I wish I'd been born earlier or like was around for this, like landing as a cultural, um, you know, a stone in the, in the surface of the water of our pop culture that to like, see this on screen and be excited about it. And like everybody else also being blown away by it for the first time. I, I just have to imagine there are some people that like absolutely adore this film. And uh, I'm sure they're listening to it right now. Uh, they're they're. they're I, I feel a longing for that sense of community because this is such an interesting movie. And I'm like, Oh man, I, I was missing out. <laughs> like, this is, there's probably people that know every inch of this movie uh, and, uh, and hold it, hold it precious and sacred and have their own ideas about the mannequins and their own ideas <laughs> about why the poles are on fire in the scene where they're fighting in the gladiator arena. Like there is, there's community and 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 beyond this that feels akin to what it must have been like to make it. I think, I assume, I don't know, but it is. It seems like a special movie.
0: Yeah, I know one of our first guests. I, I want to say it was Chris Rain. Chris, if it was not you, sorry. And if it was someone else, sorry. But I said that this is their favorite movie.
3: Yeah, it, it's it has that um, that punch to it, that power, much the way that like there are people that absolutely adore um like halloween or they right. live or i right. think i mean like uh, mm-hmm. those are movies that like um wear a groove in your brain and like stay there and that you can't help but come back to over and over again and i think it's it was just a a mistake of timing that i didn't see this one before or it definitely would have uh impacted me in a similar way
0: it's really it's really interesting something i just Thought of as you were saying that, you know, John Carpenter. You know, obviously he's he's very successful. Uh, mm-hmm. He's had a long career. He's still around, uh, but you know, he's never he's not a huge director. You know, he's not you know a giant. He's never been nominated for an Oscar or anything like that. Right. Though. But he's made multiple movies that have these giant cult followings. Though you know, Halloween is considered you know a major one of the major horror movies ever made and has a huge cult following. This movie has a huge cult following, you know, big trouble in little China was a box office flop that has an enormous cult following. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, he's, you know, he's done these movies that just, you know, maybe they're not the record breakers and, and maybe, you know, he's not at the level with the, you know, the Spielberg's and the Nolans and everything, but you know, he's made some movies that really have had an incredible influence and impact.
3: Totally, yeah. That like some some movies, or or just movies in general. Um, I think we relate to them in uh, ways that are almost like a, like friendships. Like a, mm. a movie that you really like a lot uh, is almost like a, a pal, or, mm. or you know, and somebody that like you knew when you were younger, and you can touch base with them later when you're growing up, and they ha- we we get personal attachments to them, and that usually has nothing to do with the box office success of that film or how many awards it won. Right. It, it has to do with, you know, who you were as a person when you saw it and how it, how it affected you. You know, like I have, um, uh, for me, like a movie that I absolutely adore um, and that is like a personal friend to me is the princess bride, like that Aww. movie, uh, you know, and I'm not alone in that. I mean, that is definitely another one of those like films that got, a cult following that exploded into like bigger popularity later on, but the movie itself didn't do terribly well in theaters like at all. Um, But that's meant more to me than like most of the record breaker films that like, you know, dominate the summer box office or something like that. Like, Mm -hmm. and you know, if there is a talent to making films that um, impact people in that way, I think Carpenter is one of the best at it. I mean, I, my, my friend Kalinda, just posted the other day she lives in Pasadena and um she was on her way home the other day and she stopped and uh did a little video on her phone because there were a bunch of people lined up outside the house the Halloween house from Halloween mm. and it's you know not to pull back the curtain on recording these too too often but it, it is not Halloween time currently <laughs> <when> Recording <we're laughs> this, you know but there was like a line of people um up there because I think they were like redecorating the front of it or something like that and putting out some pumpkins and there were dedicated super fans out there on a random like uh, Thursday so so excited to like touch or be near something from a a movie that he made and I I don't I don't think that's nothing I think that's uh, that's bigger than than anything else you can do when you make a film
2: yeah I think that's you know, obviously, this is a business. And so there's people, business people are going to measure a, a level of success by the finances. But I think in the, the heart artistic creative sense, and I think also, probably something to do with, you know, our ages and, and, you know, what creative filmmaking really looked like, but independent film, and this model of independent filmmaking was hugely inspiring to me as a teenager and in my twenties. Like this template of people getting together and working it out by themselves, basically, and working with the same crew of people over and over and over again. And there's a series of filmmakers who, you know, David Lynch is an example of that, Tarantino's an example of that, Scorsese, even though Scorsese obviously went on to, you know, larger budget. Mm -hmm. But this is just like such a like a profound template of You know, even though this is not maybe reflective of of a tentpole movie in the way that we see the business today, but the fact that this had such a profound cultural impact, the fact that, you know, Carpenter, like you said, put out several movies that are, you know, culturally moving is like significant as an artist. I mean, what more could you possibly want as a creative but to have something that's so that that people want to own? that yeah. people are so connected to that they want to go to your sets 30 years after the fact is like to make pilgrimages to that, to Pasadena, no less, like to kind of, <laughs> you know, pilgrimage to Pasadena, no yeah. offense to Pasadena, but you know, like that's <laughs>
3: <laughs> a little bit of offensive as maybe, but like, <laughs> you know, you guys yeah. know, come on now. Yeah, like, no, 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 it's true. It's true. Like that's, that's not an otherwise exciting place, but it, it's made a like, sacred in a way. Yeah, because of the the what the story means to people, or what the film means to people, or what the story of making the film means to people, has um, nothing to sneeze at. It's again, that's not to say that people don't like care deeply about a, a blockbuster, huge success movie. Of course they do. Um, you know, when people talk about their favorite movies, I always put like Jurassic Park up there, which is mm-hmm. you know, come on, get out of here. Like that's the biggest filmmaker in the world making the biggest film in the world. Fair, but these also occupy an equally deep space in people's hearts. And it's almost more impressive to me to, you know, get $6 million and your friends and uh, a city of St. Louis that was very accommodating, I suppose, and um, be able in a couple months to cobble together something, um, you know, by the seat of your pants that then becomes a, you know, part of the fabric of our, our cultural identity as Americans. Like that's really cool. That's, that's probably cooler than making something with all the money in the world. Maybe. I don't know. Right. Well, there's (laughs)
2: plenty of movies that, you know, make back and make a profit internationally that we would just be like, that's shit. Sure.
0: Yeah. And (laughs) transformers (laughs) movies. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, you know, uh, yeah, Michael Bay. Anywho, yes. <laughs> I think to be able to make something that really touches people deeply is, I think, the hallmark and the goal of any artist. And and to, to know that what you've done is beloved, you know, and influential to, a, a, you know, generations of people creating is, I think there's just no higher feat. You know, there's yeah. no higher accomplishment as a creative than that.
3: Likewise. Well said. Put that on the T-shirt. <laughs> um so this minute itself uh the only other like uh like note i took or thung- thing that like stood out to me in the uh um the actual text was just you know to give our uh our creepy friend Doubleday here another uh, <laughs> another kudos when uh um when brain goes over there to help the president and Romero like appears in the background. He does this weird
1: uh-huh.
3: inspired gesture where he like leans up against the mannequin hand. And, and you know, they're talking about cyanide capsules and all that. And instead of like interrogating what um brain is up to or like looking after the president or anything like that, he is he's chosen to instead like do this weird lean against the creepy statue hand. I don't know what how you come up with that but it is memorable in a way that you know this isn't a scene where like two people are in a uh, office building like discussing the hostage this is a weird executive space with crazy stuff in it and people doing weird stuff that's unexplained and (laughs) i don't know like that's better i think that's better
0: (laughs) yeah he's he's caressing the mannequin's hand and resting his cheek in the mannequin's hand uh that as you would like your significant other basically
3: yeah (laughs) it's brilliant (laughs) it's so weird because he's not like addressing the mannequin as like he's still talking to brain about like cyanide capsules like it's not it's such a incongruous gesture but i think that's why it's interesting that's why it's cool or why why it sticks out or is memorable or whatever like the thing i think about sometimes is like uh when you go in for an audition for like a a a role in a film or tv show and you know dollars to donut if you get called in for an audition for something big pretty much everybody that's going in to read for that is a very good actor there it's not usually going to be like oh, this guy was excellent at acting and that guy totally sucked. That's why we're not using him. Pretty much everyone goes in and they're doing a good job or they wouldn't have had the representation that got them that audition in the first place. And what will happen if you're uh, on the other side, like running the auditions, because I, I did a couple times work in a casting office where I was like the reader during auditions, which is we have the actor come in and you know, do their audition, you need to have somebody else saying the lines. And it's better, it gives a better read for the audition if that other person is another actor and not, like, just the casting director, Mm
1: -hmm. so that the
3: the casting director can watch what the performer's doing instead of looking down at the page. So, you know, you'll occasionally get actors in to just be readers for auditions. And the thing I noticed was you would get, like, you know, six people auditioning in a day, and they were all really great and they're all kind of doing the same thing because there is a straightforward approach to every scene where you're like, okay, if I'm hitting this emotional beat and doing this thing and then playing it out that way, this is probably how it will look. And then you'll see an actor do that, and you'll be like, yeah, it's pretty good. And then you'll see another actor do it, and you're like, yeah, that's the same thing, but it's pretty good. And you'll get, like, six of those, and they're all good, but they're all kind of doing the same thing. And then you'll get an actor who, like, Comes in and they're reading it, and then they make a totally different choice. They do something that plays against the generic aspect of the scene, and it like opens up. And you and you like take a step back. You're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing! It's not Mm. that like the other actors weren't skilled, but that different approach made the scene more interesting. And Mm. you and you want the scene to be interesting, so then that's usually who you send a call back or bring in or whatever but that like this type of um choice i am thinking of it as like if i saw somebody do that in an audition i'd be like that is bizarre we have to have them <laughs> like, right because nobody else was gonna do that and and now it's you know now it's weird enough that I, however many years later we're talking about it on a, on a podcast isn't that something isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> no i'm 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 actually just like really just tripping out on the choice,
2: honestly. yeah. I mean, it seems I mean, you have these like weird mannequins in the environment, but I think what really gets me is that he's chosen to interact with it in a very affectionate manner, yeah, you no. Know? like it's almost like to soothe himself,
3: yeah. it makes it feel like a lived in space. like this is. Maybe he's got weird rituals with the mannequins. Maybe he talks to them. I don't know. But it's, it feels less like actors standing around in a set and more like we're in this guy's place. And right. I, uh, we can't linger here too long because uh, I don't know what's going on. Um, which is useful for the cinema that's happening. Right,
2: right. And I think that's also a really good observation, because in order to interact with this type of thing, you have to feel comfortable with doing it. And there's Mm -hmm. an ownership of it. And so that also gives us really interesting information. Again, really good shorthand. Yeah, this is a cool movie,
3: guys.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I want to mention the costuming quick. Uh, At the very, very end of this movie, we get a good shot of the three thugs that are in the room here. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, because one of them, the one on the left, for some reason has his face and head entirely covered and is wearing sunglasses.
3: <laughs> yeah, and
0: then the one on the right, at best I can tell, appears to have a bandana covering his eyes. Yeah, so he can't see. Uh, and so it just continues our line of this the really insane costuming in this movie, and. Uh, <laughs> Zach, I know you've had some experience working in costuming, and I just, what your reaction was to seeing this movie for the first time and the costuming specifically, because it's just so out there in this movie.
3: Yeah, I, I'm, my first reaction was just kind of like uh, being impressed and slightly confused, and just being like, "All right, I'm going to go with it." Um, I mean, this this frame is, I guess, kind of indicative of their whole like uh, approach to making a weird culture in this space where it's all. Uh, created from pre-existing items but used in weird ways like how you know it's a I guess it's maybe very hot outside in this environment like sometimes we have characters who aren't really wearing many clothes at all and then they'll like have a like random layer on over the top of it or we have you know things where the the sleeves have been torn off and repurposed in other ways that it is like visually giving the impression of these aren't things that were made from scratch or these aren't like bespoke garments nobody's having like custom made (laughs) stuff here this is all the world is broken and we're remaking it in our in our own way and um to like at least say a bit more specifically like what my experience has been working with costumes is that like i've i've only worked in um like costume construction, especially costume construction, which is usually for like big sci-fi movies or uh, superhero films and stuff like that, where they need like weird armor to be built or a, you know, super suit or capes or whatever. And, um, I'm, a a glorified uh, buckle guy you know like I worked (laughs) (laughs) I I worked in final assembly which means like other people made all the cool creative decisions I'm just putting the thing together so like you know the the straps that make the armor stay on that's my that's my zone gluing things to things, like that's what I do so like I'm not as well versed in the conceptual approach to to costumes and stuff like that but being in an environment that's hard not to at least get like an appreciation for it. Uh, Even if I don't have like expertise in it or I I didn't study that before, you know, I came out like I I don't, I didn't have a costuming background before I worked in costumes. I just like, I had made my own costumes for personal use and uh, people understood that I wasn't afraid of uh, getting my hands dirty and you you need that on on certain sets. So like I, I wouldn't have like a deep tissue understanding of uh, how to approach making your entire costume aesthetic for something like this. But I would have to assume that they made some really smart decisions with what can we get away with in terms of what our budget is? Because that's kind of the opposite Mm. of all of the projects I worked on, where like the only reason I was on there was they needed a lot of people on board because they were making a lot of stuff for some very expensive things. Uh, Like I I worked on Black Panther a little bit because Mm. they had that, there were so many costumes that had to be made for that um, film that they like actually move them. on And this is common with the Marvel films where they will spread it out to multiple different shops um, that are, you know, like VFX, I mean, <clears throat> special effects shops that are building stuff. They'll like farm out the work to more than one of them. Cause there's just so much stuff going on. So like, my friend Caitlin worked at a different costume shop that worked on the principal costumes for like the super suit that black Panther wears. And there was another shop that was working on the costumes that like primarily the water, uh, the, um, the border tribe in Wakanda wears. And what my shop was working on was the Jabari warriors that Mbaku leads, like all of the, mm. uh, the, the like gorilla worshiping guys. And um, it was, it was one of those things where like, that is a project on the scale of, There's so many moving parts. Everything is made totally from scratch. Somebody like sculpted and created a version of whatever armor piece that I'm going to be assembling, and then somebody else ran it in urethane, and somebody else painted it, and somebody else is there. uh, You know, I'm I'm the guy that is doing the final finishing and putting all the straps on and making it so somebody can actually wear it. Like there is a entire orchestrated production line, like multiple factories worth of people creating a costume. This is a thing where like we had $6 million and, you know, a couple months to make a thing. How do we, how do we give the environment that we're creating the texture of the story we're trying to, to, to get across when we can't make everything from scratch. So the idea of taking pre-existing garments and cutting them up in weird ways and reassembling them both works artistically and is also like a good cheap, like, <laughs> You know, economic approach to just physically how do we dress this many people? And mm. um, yeah, I don't know. It's impressive because it's like a a, a thing I wouldn't be doing, and uh, and they got as much uh, cinematic like zhuzh out of it as you get <laughs> with, like these multiple billion dollar million dollar budgets on other things. Like that's really cool that mm. I I can be just I I can believe this environment and this, like, uh, uh, not community, what am I trying to say? I can believe this culture that they've created almost as, you know, I I can invest in that, in the believability of it, almost as much as I would invest in the believability of a culture like Wakanda where everything is, like, perfectly made to, like, from, like, bespoke for every individual actor. Like, this is... Uh it's a different story, so it's a different texture, so it's a different vibe, so you can have a different approach, and it still works, so that's cool. I don't know. Is that <laughs> maybe I was like spiraling off in too many tangents there, but like does that does that make sense? like how i um how I would like distinguish the two? yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, that's
3: yeah. Yeah. It, again, it's one of those things where like I watch this film and like it's inspiring on a on a do it yourself level more so than a Pie in the sky. Well, like maybe one day when I've got like you know, when a studio's given me so much money to make their big IP thing, maybe someday I can XYZ versus like watching somebody make something original and being like, Oh wow, like you can you can pull cinema together on shoestrings and with bootstraps. Like that's mm-hmm. cool.
2: It is cool.
3: Uh, yeah, it's very inspiring. I uh, maybe that's maybe that's the theme. It's it's very cool and it's very inspiring and yeah. I'm, I'm glad I got to see it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's let's throw my last um, tying in question to you here. Okay. Uh, so Hauk, the leader of the prison, let's say uh, something happened to him. He had to leave and they decided to bring in they, they needed someone tough. And an aggressive who could really handle things to run the prison. <laughs> and they bring in this Sam Raimi version of J. Jonah Jameson.
3: Oh, how, bless. how would
0: he handle running New York prison?
3: I think I think he would uh adjust quite quickly. I think he would uh he would revel in his like newfound authority and I think I mean because JJ sort of like holds court anyway like in his own space at least the Sam Raimi interpretation of him whenever we the, whenever those movies enter a daily bugle scene it's almost like it becomes a different type of film like mm. JJ has such a big personality and has such sway over his version of doing things that reality kind of warps around him and suddenly it's <laughs> like a like a 1940s like fast talking thing like JJ is such a big Blustery, uh, uh, force of nature. That I don't. I don't know. I don't care where he ends up. He's going to make himself the center of it all, and uh, everybody else will have to sort of behave the way he does. So <laughs> I like my my vision of like hit, when we have all these like that uh, cuts back to headquarters or whatever with hawk like hawk hawk i don't exactly know uh, how it's
0: pronounced name hawk from. although it may hawk. as well be hawk i mean everyone else is, right <laughs> everyone else in this movie you know brain snake cab you may as well be hawk
3: <laughs> that's probably where it came from yeah um but like i just imagine that when we, we cut back to jj's version of that and there's people running by you know in the background trying to um you know uh, pitch new ideas towards them of like crazy new things they can try on these prisoners or like new new stuff that they can that they can do because he is um he is demanding so much from everybody that they have to do better and do newer and do crazier and you got to get you gotta get me pictures I would love to see the parallel universe version of this movie where J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson is in charge of the uh what do we call this this whole uh expedition the New York penitentiary the New York uh prison the New York uh, uh kid, big cage or whatever that we <laughs> okay. um i i i think instead of his like journalistic integrity it would be a integrity in terms of uh like punishment and justice right that, like jj is less about um at least in those films is less about like get me the like the most true to life version of like what's going on and is more, get me the thing that will sell the paper, get me the thing that will boost my star a bit, get me the thing that will take down Spider-Man, but we won't make stuff up. So this, that sort of energy where he's like, it's all about me, but I have like some, some integrity transferred to this would probably be more like, we got (laughs) to, we got to, we have to do our thing, but also, can we make sure we know how innovative I am with my <laughs> approach to cutting off the bridges and not <laughs> having access? And the, mm. our walls will be better, and you know, whatever unique ways that we spy on or uh, punish all of the people that are that are in there. When it comes to the plot of this movie specifically, it probably would have more to do with how he talks to. Pliskin, and I don't know if it would go as well for JJ because Hauk is kind of laid back and he gets the uh the threat in like under the radar where he's um mm. he's already kind of in his hand before he mm. knows what's going on I think JJ would be like boasting about the explosive arterial <laughs> shenanigans way ahead of time and he might have to take a different <laughs> approach <laughs> I think I think those two personalities would clash in a, a less smooth slick way
0: Sweet. Yeah. Uh any anything else on this minute from anybody?
3: Um I I just I'm inspired by the film and I'm I'm glad I got to watch it. That's all I got.
0: Well that is music to Molly in my ears that we got <laughs> a, a new person who'd never seen it before who loves it that much. That's just that's awesome.
3: Thank you guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on and let me uh let me talk talk your ear off on your <laughs>
0: Sure. Well, well. Uh, if you, if people like hearing you talk to you the more, remind them again one more time where they can hear that.
3: Sure. You can hear me on uh, my main podcast that I co-host with my friend Scott Corelli, Spider-Man Minute, where we're in the midst of covering the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films we're right now on Spider-Man 3. That's Spider-Man Minute on any of your podcasting things, Spider-Man Minute on Instagram, Spider-Man Minute on Twitter, Spider-Man Minute on iTunes, Spider-Man Minute. And if you want to find me, I'm uh, Zachary J. Luna on Instagram, And Twitter at Zachary with an H, J with a J, and Luna Like the Moon. Thanks again for having me, guys.
0: Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us this week. And, uh, you know, Spider-Man Minute and us here at Escape from New York Minute, we're all part of the Movies by Minutes uh, world. Go to moviesbyminutes.com. There's a very good chance that the movie that you really like is on there. There's 140 podcasts on there, but there's more movies than that because much like Spider-Man Minute – uh, huh? Some podcasts do multiple movies, so there's, there's got to be two, three hundred movies that have gotten this treatment so far. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's really just a, a genre that has just completely exploded and, and continues to grow. Uh, let's give another shout out to another website that we've used to get some of our information and uh, some of the photos we've put in our fan page, the efnyla page.com. Uh, thank you very much to the people over there at that website we appreciate very much all of the info we've pulled from your site uh and let, let's promote our contest another time here time is starting to run out you gotta send <laughs> your photo of chock full of nuts find something <laughs> somewhere out there a chock full of nuts send molly and me a photo and win a guest shot on one minute of the end credits send it to escape from new york minute at gmail.com even if it's a interesting use of a chock full of nuts can in your own home that counts that would qualify send as many as you possibly think you can to get yourself to win make sure you have skype and be available in late november to do that awesome. uh yeah yeah unfortunately you're not eligible zach no gas <laughs> that's, that's
3: all right you're already thinking like chair. oh
0: i've got that can of coffee <laughs> in my kitchen no i'm sorry. Uh,
3: No, no, no. I've had plenty of time to talk about this movie. I'm excited (laughs) to see what else happens in the future.
0: Uh, Join us on Facebook, Brains Library, The Escape from New York Minute Hangout. Join us on Twitter, NY Minute Pod. And until next time, be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall.